Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have the privilege of introducing you to an author that um, I've been working kind of hard to get on the podcast. He's a super busy guy. Um, It's Mike Cooperman. So Mike, would you like to say hello to our listeners? Hi. It's a pleasure to be here, Vicki. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you have a super busy schedule, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about what you do um, in your life and your world. So thanks for stopping in and taking some time with us. Um, so let's do a little bit of introduction, Mike. Where do you currently reside in the Pacific Northwest? Um, I live in Eugene, Oregon, um, right, which is where the University of Oregon is. So yeah, home of the Ducks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go Ducks. <laughs> One of my favorite places is Eugene. Love it down there. My husband did a lot of work um, in Eugene and actually on the university, he's in construction. So at one point we thought we were going to move down there, but we ended up not. <laughs> so love it. So um, Mike, so I've done a lot of looking into your research, looking at your work, um, but my listeners may not know you. So tell us a little bit up front, um, a little bit about yourself. Start out with um, if you met a stranger in an elevator and you have a couple of seconds to kind of tell them who you are, or what you're about, what would you say to them? Oh, let's see. I would tell them that I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I would tell them that I run a sort of informal literary arts organization um, in Oregon, the Oregon Writers Collective, that also has a uh, bi-monthly reading series here in Eugene. Mm -hmm. Um, that seeks to connect sort of emergent writers to one another um, and help promote the literary arts uh, in the both state and local community. I would tell them that I'm an educator. um, And then in particular, I work in diversity retention, mostly with um, low-income first-generation college students who are often students of color. Mm -hmm. um, And that I've been doing that for about 15 years. And I would probably also tell them that uh, I wrote a book about the experience that made me an educator, um, a book called Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta, that was about the years that I taught with Teach for America um, in the rural black public schools of the Delta. So my listeners hearing you say those things are all like, oh, now we know why Vicki has them on the podcast. Because <laughs> we have a little bit of parallels um, in our world. Um, so I work with at the Western Governors University and one of my roles is retention as well. So that's kind of dear to my heart. Um, and I'm also a first generation college student myself. So, um, so we have some parallels and I'm working on my first book. So mine's not a memoir like yours is yours is a very compelling book and we're going to dig into that quite a bit. So, so when I saw, um, I think I saw your website and I'm like, oh, I got to bring them on the show <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, so let's backtrack just a little bit, Mike. When did you know, because this is, I really focus in on a writer's journey and the publishing journey. And then we really dig deep on the topic that you wrote about um, or as deep as we can. Um, when did you know that you were a writer? Was that something that you just realized as a young person or did it come to you later on in life? So I guess that I apparently, because I of course don't remember this, but I apparently told my parents that I was going to be a writer when I was like four or five. Well, that's um, cool. <laughs> and evidently I've stuck with that. Um, I have no memory of actually having done that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, but I certainly, I think knew that, um, 
that written and spoken language was always something that I was interested in, um, that I gravitated towards stories and, um, and particularly towards reading because, you Mm -hmm. know, I was a, was a tremendous reader when I was a a kid, um, Mm -hmm. especially. So yeah, I I guess I knew early. Early on. Wow. And so that you just led up to my next question. So as, um, authors or soon to be authors or emerging authors, because I have all of them that listen to the show and I'm an emerging author myself, we're told so often, you know, you have to be reading, you have to be a really um, consistent reader. And so I love to ask the authors that come on the show, what's on your reading list? What's on your bookshelf or in your nightstand sitting next to you when you go to bed to read? Well, let's see. I am just finishing um, Carmen Maria Machado's uh, Her Body and Other Parties. Mm. which is a book of stories that was um, a national book award finalist. I think, I think it's about a, like last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the collection is, um, is just fabulous. Um, parts of it, you know, are sort of um, our magical realism. Um, but the stories are also in some ways, literary fiction. They're also fresh and experimental. There's one story in it that's uh, literally like a, a retelling of every episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Oh, that's um, awesome. <laughs> That's not actually about Law and Order Special Victims Unit in some strange way. Um, yeah, but so uh, the book is really different than I think what I anything that I've possibly encountered. Um, and I think she has a memoir out that I'm interested in that I think just came out that's that's creating a whole bunch of buzz um, I that I, I haven't gotten my hands on yet. Um, but that book has been has been particularly inspiring to me because I am also a fiction writer, and so it's mm-hmm. it's nice to sort of leave the world of of creative nonfiction and essays for a little bit and, mm-hmm. and go back and read you know short stories. Mm-hmm. I love it. So, do you have fiction work that's been published? Or are you working on something? I I yeah I have. I don't have a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I must have published as many as six or seven stories or pieces of fiction mm-hmm. um in some pretty good places you know places like boston review mm-hmm. um but those stories are are sort of part of a novel in stories that i've been working on for a long time mm. um that are you know in the voices of children who grew up in a rural mississippi town oh, okay. um, so in some ways it's kind of like the um it's like the the flip side i guess to the book that i wrote teacher yeah, and it's looking at a community sort of from the from the children who were there. And their I, I bet that would be fascinating too, as far as writing it for you, because you wrote your book from your perspective. But then those other voices probably helps you to see a different perspective, you know, as a writer. So, so very cool. Okay, so tell us. Um, so, what do you teach at the university? Are you are you a writing teacher? I am. Yeah. So I get to teach, um, basically like freshman writing, right. Mm -hmm. Composition one and Mm -hmm. composition two. English comp one and two. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but I, but I specifically teach students who come from, um, an office called the center for multicultural academic excellence. Mm -hmm. So it's basically sort of the diversity retention wing of the university. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I get, you know, particularly at least in my view, uh, talented and capable, you know, group of students who maybe don't have quite as much privilege as the average university student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to sort of teach them writing, but also help them sort of find their voices and identities um, and locate themselves 
on college campus so that they're sort of oriented for success. That's fantastic. I love that. I'm, I'm a super student success fan. Um, and prior to being at the university, I, I ran uh, a supplemental instruction, self-placed learning and um, tutoring services. So I worked very closely with all of you know our students that were coming in that needed the additional help in all of the coursework. So I, I love that. What a great job. So I bet as you're working with those students, you're helping them to not only find their voice, but find their place in where they're at in the university, which is challenging, right? It, it, it really is challenging, I think, for students to, you know, to feel like they belong, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I think you're a first-generation college student, um, which I am not, right? So you would know this in a firsthand way that mm-hmm. I can only ever sort of appreciate from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, for many of my students, they're, they're not necessarily sure, it, you know, if they're supposed to be at the university um, mm-hmm. or if the university is for them or if they are good enough or capable enough to succeed, um, yeah. you know, in getting a college degree. And so, yep. you know, part of my job is to teach them writing and, and critical thinking and, and, and analytical skills and communication skills. But part of it is also, I think, in some ways to help them also build confidence and understand Absolutely. that, you know, that they can succeed. Absolutely. And navigating that system is such a challenge when you haven't seen that example in in your life. So bravo to you for taking on that role. It's a great role and probably exhausting at times, but I'm sure it's rewarding at times as well. So so great. So let's talk a little bit. We're going to dive into your particular book um, here in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about the writing process. And I also want to talk about the organization that you work, you know, you, you mentioned the um, emerging authors that you work with, you know, helping people. Um, so we'll get into that. But tell us a little bit about the writing process. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for the book that you have already published, but do you have a specific routine that you can share with us? Do you, do you, does the work just come to you or stories come to you and you have to spill them all out on a page? Or are you one of the organized authors that have to plot, you know, have everything out on an outline, what, what's your process? I, I think I, I wish I was an author who was organized and had a, a, a giant <laughs> plot outline. Um, I think that would make my life much easier. Um, I'm, I am very much someone who um, needs to sort of be inside of something or have something call me to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I often write from experiences that are particularly strong or indelible, um, I also often in, in, nonfiction especially tend to write about things that are located pretty far in the past. Mm. Um, or so I need some time, I guess, and some space to usually understand what was important and, and what it is that those things mean now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so oftentimes, um, I have to sort of be called to write something. Um, mm-hmm. and I, whatever that means, I guess that sounds a little bit woo um, no, it's very but, common for authors to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I'm a little bit more sort of poetic in my temperament than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I am working all the time and I'm thinking about what I'm working on. And, and I can't say that like, I don't, if I'm writing something long form or like in any individual section of something, you know, that I don't take many days to write it and I, I don't have to try to make time to kind of come back to it and, and reread it. But I also write to rhythm and sound mm-hmm. as much as I sort of write to um, you know, to, to, to some idea of what it is I'm trying to accomplish. And so the way that I can get back into something is usually by sort of rereading it to where it was. I, I last sort of was writing mm-hmm. and then try to get back in. Um, but I guess that, that approach is, it's a little bit 
little bit different, I think, from what a lot of people describe. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the writers that I know tend to talk about writing in this very sort of uh, blue collar um, language, you know, th- this idea that you get up at a certain time and you have mm-hmm. this writing routine and you sit down and you work a certain number of hours and that's how you do it because it's mm-hmm. a job. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, those people are pointing out two things, which is that it takes incredible persistence to write and also that um, their writing is significant work, right? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the outside world wants to dismiss writing as being something that's like a hobby Absolutely. or something that people yeah. don't really take seriously. Yeah. So I, you know, I value that perspective on it that you have to like stick with it. But for me, like there are days where I give myself permission not to write if there's nothing there, because if I force something, it usually isn't any good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I understand um, that. <laughs> yeah. And I also, you know, the sort of flip side of that is like, there are times when I sort of have to make time, even if that's stealing sleep from myself or, you know, or t- typing away and working on something um, after, you know, after everybody else is asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're speaking to me because um, I've done, let's see, at least going on 75 author interviews for this podcast tonight. So I've heard every version of that answer to the question. And the thing that I struggle with as I hear that is that, oh, Vicki, you don't have a set writing schedule like you should. And you don't, you know, I start condemning myself, but I'm very much similar to you is that I feel like if the creative voice isn't there, I shouldn't sit down and just try to put something on the page because it ends up, like you said, not being very good. <laughs> and then I, I walk away from it. It's like, oh, it doesn't, I don't, I just don't like it at all. It wasn't worth spending the time on it. I, I have my creative inspiration and I think that's probably why my book's taking so long to get out. <laughs> Because I have to have the flow. It has to be the right moment, the right time, the right conditions. And I can't create that every single day. <laughs> well, and I think I, I have a very similar sort of approach. So, it, it, you know, I think if you just stick with it and have patience that, you know, eventually <laughs> yeah, yeah. we write what we need to. And yeah. I mean, I guess there are lots of times in the writing process where, you know, where you you know you need to do something. and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's possible to, I think, also have a certain amount of energy or momentum with a project. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking about a teacher, for example. There were, I think, you know, it's a 220-page book, but I think about 60 of those pages got written once the book had been, um, or let's see, once I had acquired an agent for the book and, and we oh. wanted to go to market. Yeah, and yeah. and I wrote those pages, and you know the whole thing had taken me like ten years to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then all of a sudden I wrote, you know, the last like I don't know fifth of the book in you know in in three weeks or something like that. Yeah, so, I get that. I I keep thinking in the back of my mind that well, I know I'm a, a pressure orientated, deadline goal oriented individual. So if I have a legit goal or deadline, I'm going to produce <laughs> much better. And this is the way I operate. Um, so with my writers group, I meet with them every two weeks. I produce quite a bit right before our meeting <laughs> to get out to them. And I'm like, wow, that was really productive. I wish I could be that way all the time. And I keep thinking, Michael, that if I didn't have a full-time job, it would be different, but I kind of feel like it wouldn't be any different <laughs> unless I had serious hard deadlines. <laughs> so, so Yeah. So let, let me ask you this question because I, I know what your first year book is about. And um, like you mentioned that you had to, you know, you, t- you took, from what I understand, you took some time away. Did you keep journals during the two years that you were teaching in the Mississippi Delta? And then you went back to that? Or w- was, was your book generated from memories that you just had placed in the back of your mind? 
I mean, so there is an extent of both. Um, I, I wrote a substantial portion of the book. Um, I think I would say purely from memory. Mm -hmm. Um, but I actually thought at the time that I was writing fiction. Um, I did a fiction MFA program and I thought I was writing a novel in which a, um, a young person very much like myself (laughs) in every single way was somehow teaching in, you know, in this rural section of Mississippi in a town and school, very much like the one that I was in. And strangely enough, the experiences that were most indelible and the things that were happening were happening with regards to children who were basically the children I taught. So I was fictionalizing it, but I wasn't really fictionalizing it. Yeah. Um, And there was a point where with some of that prose, I just sort of, I realized that what I had written was literally exactly what it was that had happened. And so when that, when that went on, um, I, I sort of decided that I, it was okay to, to take those things that I'd written and make sure I changed anything that was fictionalized back and publish them. And they were very sort of easy to place and very successful Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really listen to that success very well. <laughs> I still thought I was writing a novel for a really long time. Um, but so I had a substantial portion of, of that. I also happened to be lucky enough to have written these sort of long email missives out of, um, out of, um, that time to people, um, who weren't there. And, yeah. um, and I'd kept those things and sort of assembled them into a word document. Um, and I was really helped by having that. Thankfully it was still like intact that I could go back to because oh, of course fortunate. I found that there was so much that I really didn't remember. Mm-hmm. You're fortunate that you had done that and then compiled them together in a format that you could read later on. <laughs> yep. So fantastic. So do you think that there was some, when you were starting to write as a, this is, so this is kind of coming from a question that I have when I talk to other memoir authors about the aspect of the line between fiction and memories and memoirs. Do you feel like that you had to get past a place maybe of, like you had to be disassociated for a while and that's why you wrote it in a fictional form. And then you realized it's, it's a good story and it's okay to have ownership of that story for yourself. You know, I think that the disassociation may have helped in some ways writing things, uh, writing some parts of it sooner maybe mm-hmm. than I otherwise would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, I think, I think to some extent that that did help. Um, but I, I think for a lot of it, what was actually most important to me was, was being able to trust that I had something important that I needed to say mm-hmm. and also being able to understand it myself. Um, you know, parts of this book are sort of difficult and, and mm-hmm. they're about, in some cases, frustration and, and things that I did that I'm not particularly proud of um, mm-hmm. when I was teaching, you know, mm-hmm. these children. Um, mm-hmm. And some of those things I think I had really buried pretty deep <laughs> yeah, exactly. and suppressed. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't get all of those out in the fiction, but I did sometimes, you know, have things in there where, you know, I had to go back and ask myself, well, did I make that up or did I not? And I was like, no, I didn't make that up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And yet I don't think of my, per- you know, myself as a person who had done certain things that I, mm-hmm. that I did. So, yeah. 
Gotcha. Um, I, I guess I guess the answer to your question might be more yes than I was sort of thinking when I initially started dancing. <laughs> that happens a lot on my show, so don't worry about that. <laughs> I love it. So for the listeners, tell us the title of the work um, because they're probably going, Vicky, you forgot to mention that. So <laughs> how about we share that? And all my listeners know that that when they're not driving on the I-5 quarter and, quarter and listening, they're going to stop and look in show notes and find your website and find it. But um, tell us, Tell us first the title of it and then, you know, give us a teeny synopsis about it. And then let's talk a little bit. I want to go back to the agent and the publishing process for you. Yeah. So um, the book's called Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta um, uh, by Michael Copperman. And it's, um, it's, uh, it was published by University Press of Mississippi in, in, I'll say 2016, but functionally the book was really more of a 2017 release. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, you know, it, it's basically the story of how in some ways I became an educator today. So it's told somewhat with a somewhat retrospective sort of um, approach, but much of it is sort of immersed in my actual experiences as a Teach for America Corps member from 2002 to 2004 gotcha. um, when I taught fourth grade self-contained um, in the Delta, which is, you know, the poorest and blackest part of the United States. It's mm-hmm. the alluvial floodplain of the Mississippi river. So it's where the legacy of King Cotton was the greatest. And so it's, you know, it remains one of the most intensely sort of, um, segregated places in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. in some ways it's, it's a place that's, that's almost out of time. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. And, and so let me ask you a question about the teaching core because not everybody maybe in- understand, you know, what that was. So you, when you went to college, did you go and get your K-12 teaching endorsement as, and then you went into the core or how did that process go? Yep, I didn't, I mean, I, I was going to say I did not, but that's not really true, I guess, because I did take the Praxis tests and so on. <laughs> so I was, I was technically certified, but, um, but Teach for America places recent college graduates um, in under-resourced areas. Gotcha. Um, where there's teacher shortages typically, um, and where the students are, are, I guess what we would describe as sort of high need or underprivileged. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually almost all of minority background. Um, and the, the particular program, which, you know, has, it, it has its own sort of press and PR machine and it's, it's a fairly well-known thing. Um, when I was a part of it was particularly elitist, I would say. Um, it is less elitist today than it was. Um, and by elitist, I simply mean that like the acceptance rates were incredibly low. I think something like one in 12 the year that I was served. So, you know, it's like, it's like grad school acceptance yeah, rate. Sort exactly. Of a, sort of a thing. Yeah. yeah. And then it's a contractual thing. So you teach for a certain amount of years and then when you're done, you have that on your resume to move on to something else. It's kind of, it's a, like a service for resume building. Am I correct in understanding that? Um, it, to some extent, I mean, or they certainly pitch it as being something which will sort of help students, uh, students, which will help the recent college students eventually sort of secure jobs or or stay on the professional paths that that they have. Gotcha. Um, it's also, you know, um, bills itself as being very justice oriented. Yeah. So you know, it's um, it's basically sort of, and what was the, the motto is one day all children, right? We'll have yeah. the opportunity to attain an excellent education. So it's very sort of, um, it, it's very much speaking that language of like change and social justice. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Hey, interesting for any listeners that didn't know what that was, you know, maybe we piqued some interest, right? (laughs) So that's interesting. Um, So tell us a little bit, you mentioned that you had eventually gotten an agent. So you are traditionally published or you public, oh, you said you were published with Mississippi um, University, am I correct? University Press? Yeah, so the the book was the book was published by what is a pretty big university press. Um, it, with that, but I did go the more traditional route. You yeah. Know? So we we had a sort of long journey. Um, I'm really glad that the book ended up with my publisher um, mm-hmm. because, well, one because they are sort of they are sort of like the strongest literary um, force in the area of Mississippi that I that I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so having a local endorsement, I think matters very much in terms of the, the things that I was writing about, right. You know, I'm mm-hmm. writing about black children I'm writing about rural poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it meant something to sort of have that book be accepted from within. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but, um, but we did go, you know, to the big publishers came pretty close at a bunch of them and so on, um, with a traditional agent. My agent was at the time that, that, um, Massey and McQuilkin, which is one of the big, um, you know, sort of big agent houses. Mm-hmm. So you landed the publisher, I mean, you landed the agent first and then they helped you get the publishing. Is that how that yeah, process Yeah, that's right. Is? Yeah. Yep. So talk with us because I do have a lot of um, emerging authors and budding authors that listen to the podcast. Talk us through what you can about the your success of getting an agent um you had a very specific book which i can imagine um you had to do some research to find the right agent for it i can you know so talk us through that a little bit well and i mean what's interesting is that i have done the whole agent search um actually i've done it multiple times in some ways um because the agent who sold my book and i parted ways after um and so you know i'm i went through things like agent query and Mm -hmm. um you know, the websites where they publish all the sort of agent bios and news and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and I've queried, you know, uh, 50 to 100 agents in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, the way that I actually got my agent was that I had published an essay in Creative Nonfiction Magazine that mm-hmm. is a chapter, basically, of the book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he had read it and was looking to sort of find new talent at that time. And mm-hmm. so, <laughs> and so the publication basically led to sort of a query. And at that time I had, you know, full manuscripts out with several other people. Mm-hmm. And so I made sure those people, you know, that, that those agents sort of didn't want precedence, but it's the sort of thing where, you know, someone who's really interested in representing you is probably a good fit. <laughs> oh, I agree. <laughs> um, and so, you know, so I was, I was really fortunate in, in some ways, I think with that book. Yeah. Um, I although I, I have to say that, that my experience sort of sense has also made me really think that, you know, that what is most important is that fit, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, finding someone who really believes in your project. Because if you're going to go through the process of trying to publish a book and and find someone else who wants to believe in it, you know, you really want someone who's on your side and in your quarter. Yes, I, I would hope so. And that's something that I've heard over and over again. And what little experience I have, it's not in the writing industry it's in the music industry it's my husband's past and it's all about partnerships and relationships i mean that's just how it happens so um so and i've talked to other authors before where they didn't have a good fit and they had the discussion with me about it's okay to not have a good fit and walk away from it because you have to take care of what you need to do for you (laughs) and some people don't have the courage to do that so 
So yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, let's talk one other thing before we get started into the actual book itself. You mentioned this amazing support group that you are a part of that you you're kind of, I believe, a co-chair or you know, you work with it. So tell us about that group. I'm gonna make sure that the in the show notes that there's a link to it. So if I have any organ authors or emerging authors, they can find you guys. Um, So tell us a little bit about that, the creation of it, the premise around it and what it's about. Well, and so what's interesting is that in some ways it's been largely organic. So in some ways, what the Organ Writers Collective is, is a, is a Facebook group um, that has now, I think between five and 600 members. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a place where people can put out information about readings that are happening, um, calls to other people to try to find, um, you know, a writing group or other people who are working in your genre, um, a place to, to post different sorts of events and, and information about festivals and resources and so on. Right. So that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, you know, it, it, it somehow also, <laughs> even as it sort of grew to be that group is also a place where I, at least help sort of advertise and promote the series, the reading series that I run here in Eugene, but that also f- or often features um, writers from out of town whenever I possibly can, you know, I'm, we're only two hours from Portland. And yeah. so there's a, a lot of people and when people have, you know, books come out and so on, um, I'll reach out to them or sometimes they'll reach out to me. Um, but I'm able to sort of run a pretty vigorous little reading series and also to still, you know, here in Eugene, feature local writers from the Lean Literary Guild and, and other places that are, you know, where, where people have been working in this community and, and are still sort of looking for audiences, looking to make connections and find other people who are sort of like-minded. So it's, it's really just about trying to create community because I didn't really have much of a literary community. Once I finished my, my MFA, which I did here at the University of Oregon, you know, all of a sudden I was sort of outside of that structure. Mm-hmm. And working here as a professional, you know, in a in the English department, which is actually separate from the creative writing department here in Eugene, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of felt like I was on my own. Mm-hmm. So, um, myself and my friend Heather Ryan sort of started the the collective reading series just as a way of sort of bringing people together, helping people find an audience, and giving people opportunities to read. Um, I love and that's it. been it's been really good. Yeah, I so love it, and it's kind of the same similar vein that the podcast ended up being for me was that I, um, even though I was in the community and I was surrounded around very creative people and in our community college. And I really felt like as a writer, I didn't know who the community, where the writer community was. So I started to ask people cause I was like, I want to publish a book. How do I do this? And so I started asking and then developed the podcast cause I got so much information from authors. I'm like, this is great. But the one thing that I found in the readings that I went to author readings in my area was that um, the most intriguing times was when authors for me, when they got up and read their books, I like, I wanted to hear from them read. And then I also realized it wasn't really a skill that authors were great with. (laughs) So you'd have authors that would get up and they just didn't have a lot of practice in reading their work. And I'm like, I bet we can do this all in a podcast. So that's where the genesis of the podcast started for me and it became my community. <laughs> so um, I love that you're doing that. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. So do, for the podcast, I mean, so th- for the Facebook page, does it only have to be Oregon authors or can people join that are outside of Oregon? People could join if they're, if they're outside of Oregon. Um, you know, it, it might be that not all the content is as relevant to them. 
but yeah. you know, with, with groups, we can kind of tune out, right. Or come yeah. back in when, we, when we're interested or, you know, maybe you're visiting Portland and you want to see what's happening there. Exactly. Or visiting yeah. Eugene and you might be having a reading from an author <laughs> that they want to hear about. So that, that would be exciting. So how often do you guys have a live events where you do some readings? Usually they're, they're bi-monthly. Um, although I often take a break for the summer. Yeah. Um, uh, this year I'm a little, <laughs> I'm between venues just now. So I, I have to get something back together. Um, you know, I've been at several different places and I usually like to find a, a business, something like a, a brewery or a coffee shop where, you know, people can sort of buy beverages or, or food or whatever. And where the business is also benefiting from me bringing people, yep. but that's sort of built to handle that audience. Um, exactly. Yeah. So I, I recently lost my partner because, uh, because this local brewery closed down. Um, oh. so I have to kind of find my next venue that I've got some things in the works. Well, fantastic. Well, I commend you. I know how much work that is. Um, I, I'm really good friends with an author who he does that similar thing here called WordFest in my area. And he does yeah. it once a month and he brings in authors from all over the place. And um, he's actually the one that invited me to his writer's group. So I'm in his writer's group as well. So I've met tons of authors that I brought on a podcast from that experience. And it's a lot of work, but it's so valuable because it gives a platform for authors. And it also gives readers that may never have experienced that author before that gives the opportunity to have some exposure. So great job on that. So I'll definitely make sure in show notes, we at least have a link to to the Facebook. So then it, people might be interested, you know, they don't, if you don't mind getting some flooded on that. <laughs> no, that's great. So, so before you start your reading, tell me a little bit for this particular work, what was the driving force for you to get this work out? Was it an academic? Was it a personal drive? What was the inspiration to make sure that you got this work out for you? Well, and so for me, I guess there were really two main sort of uh, reasons why I wanted to, to write this particular book. I think in, in a lot of ways, I wanted to write this book because I was... Um, so invested in the children that I taught in Mississippi and had cared about them so much. Um, and also felt such tremendous, uh, guilt in some ways, um, both about, um, how well I had actually been able to serve them and also about, you know, having stayed a couple of years and then left. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a long way from rural Mississippi to Eugene, Oregon. Um, oh, absolutely. Big and <laughs> right. It's kind of a world away. And so yeah. I felt in some ways that I had almost like abandoned this obligation or abandoned them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, in some ways it was about the kids and thinking about them and, and thinking that their stories in some ways deserve to be told. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was also in some ways, you know, their stories flowing into mine and trying to think about that relationship, um, 10 and then 15 years down the line, right. You know, what had it meant to teach there? Um, uh, what were my ideas of myself at the time? I, I had this sort of grandiose vision that I was going to go save children from the lives they were born into. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not really what an educator does. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that at, at you know, 22. <laughs> well, <yeah>. So, <laughs> so I, I needed to sort of reckon with that in some ways and also reckon with who I'd become, uh, you know, teaching all of these years after to a population of, of kids that are in some ways really similar right? They're like, you know, the kids who I wanted to make it to college. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. they still drop out at the university at very high rates. And so I'd taken that job thinking I was having this tremendous impact, but I think I also had this sort of impossible idea in some way that I was atoning for the past. 
Um, uh-huh. yep. And, you know, the atonement is kind of an impossible thing to do in the present in some ways. Yeah, really <laughs> and is. so I had to think about, you know, what, what it actually meant to sort of teach now and what it meant to have taught those kids then. Um, and I also think in some ways, you know, I think it's also important to say that I think it was important to talk about about these kids um, in the Delta because in some ways places like rural Mississippi are sort of out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. They're often out of sight, out of mind, even, even um, in our own communities, right? Mm-hmm. Often the sort of poorest schools are ones that we talk about as being bad. Mm-hmm. And we don't think about the children who are in those schools who are, you know, going to school every day trying their best to learn and who are maybe yep. not given the best opportunities and resources and teachers. Yep. So, Absolutely. well, I, I think it's, I personally haven't read your book yet. I've read a lot of the um, comments and the, the praise that you've had about the book and it, because I'm academic in nature, I, I definitely do want to read it. Um, and I'm into education, but I think it's very valuable that we do give the voices to um, individuals that are marginalized, you know, and, and we don't look at. And I think it's amazing that in, you know, in our United States, there's so many cultures and, and communities that we, a lot of people don't picture, they don't see, <laughs> they purposely don't see, right? <laughs> or whatever, yeah. whatever reason. So I think it's fantastic that you wrote the book. Um, so before you start your reading, what's your future plans? Um, is this going to be, I know you said you work on fiction too. So is this the only thing you're going to do or do you have something in the works in your mind? Well, so, so I am, you know, even as we speak, actually going to market with a second book, um, with a, you know, completely new agent now and sort of a new direction. Um, and apparently that book is also a memoir. Um, (laughs) not the, uh, not the novel and stories, which I do hope to eventually find a home for. Um, but this particular book uh, seems timely in some ways, but it's about, Um, it's actually sort of going back to, I guess, an identity that I had before I went to Mississippi, which is that, um, which is that I was a, um, a high school and college wrestler. Um, I went to Stanford actually on a wrestling scholarship. Um, and so the book in some ways is about, um, what drove me to sort of try to become, um, sort of tough and impervious, um, through this, you know, sort of like hyper-masculine and some people would say sort of violent and combative sport, mm-hmm. what it was that I was looking for and why that happened, mm-hmm. um, which in my case had a lot to do with sort of being like the only student of color in a really white working class place mm-hmm. where I was bullied a lot. Mm-hmm. And then what the sort of consequences were of choosing a sport, which, you know, it has its extremes um, and sort of obsessive qualities to it mm-hmm. and what that had sort of uh, made of me, I guess, long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of, it's an interesting book, but I think in some ways, um, it's a recognizable story for a lot of, for a lot of men, you know, mm-hmm. it's in some ways it's about, I guess, what we would call toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly about, about race and identity, um, not necessarily in an academic way so much as sort of in a, you know, in a, in a very sort of practical and applied way mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, where I fit in and where I did not and what some of the choices were that I made about, about how I thought I had to be. Mm-hmm. I I think it's a brilliant concept and book, and I I do I'm I'm excited that you wrote it. I don't think personally that there's enough of that discussion going on uh, for men and young men that are growing up in that idea. <laughs> and so um, 
awesome. I'm excited to hear how that happened no, when it gets published and, and, and what kind of feedback you receive from it. And so great job on that. Um, so why don't you set the stage for us for your reading of your current book? Again, remind us of the title so that my listeners, you know, will be what that is. And then go ahead and start the reading. I'm going to go ahead and be quiet and listen. Yeah. So, I mean, so again, the, the reading is from my book, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. Um, and in particular, this, this section that I'm going to read, um, in some ways actually occurs near the end of the book. And it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of summation and, and an act of sort of memory and of celebration in some ways of the kids that I taught. And it's also a section where I attempt to sort of consider, um, who I became as a result of having taught, um, and how I've sort of reckoned with the experience. Um, I should say, as I go to read that there are a lot of children who are sort of speaking in this section. Um, and those children as they did are speaking in, you know, African American vernacular English in the particular idiom of the Mississippi Delta. Um, and because I'm going to read them out loud, you know, there's a performative aspect to that. Uh, I've done my best to represent how they spoke, um, but I always like to say um, to people when I'm reading that, you know, that my attempt is to respect those children and that if, you know, in reading their dialect, I, I mangle it or do anything incorrect with it. The, the fault is all mine because those children um, were beyond reproach. Okay. This is all there is. The world tells Delta kids. These razor wire fences to keep you out or in, these cinder block walls and ill-lit halls and these doors to dead-end rooms. Here are the streets dusty and blank, this queue of tin-roofed shacks, the bowing boards of porches, these sun-scorched flats and this ragged edge of cotton field that you can't claim, you can't sow or reap, you can't. I came and declared, you can, said it again and again, hoping each time that it would sound less hollow. The Delta changed me. People speak of how idealism ought to be tempered by experience and think it a benign process, growing older, becoming wiser. They're wrong. You can't restore faith. I wouldn't have been teaching more than a decade now at the University of Oregon if it weren't for those two years in the Delta. Would long ago have traded in my Stanford degree for a job with status and decent pay. Each day in the classroom with 18-year-olds of diverse background, I see my fourth graders grown up, and a part of me imagines that somehow I'm speaking directly to the children for whom I wanted so much. Yet back in promise, children I taught walk the dusty streets headed nowhere, and I don't have it in me to help them. It isn't work ethic I lack, but the courage to fail, to fail again to save a child who doesn't have a fighting chance. Some nights I lay awake bargaining, trying to get back to the man I was, and I imagine choices. If I could trade my comfortable life for theirs, if I could take their lot of freedom from poverty, would I? It's simple to say, of course, when there are guarantees. I dream of carrying children to safety from fires, of burying them across ravines in a storm, of leading the way through a dark wood and a line of children behind following blindly, grudgingly, until we emerge in a city with clean, bright streets, the very air shimmering with possibility, and they're with me despite all our doubts. We've arrived. When I wake, that relief is bitterly lost. I'm alone in my high-rise apartment with all the comforts of a middle-class life, and those children are whirled away in shacks on the wrong side of the tracks, hearing the bark of a stray dog, the far-off whistle of a train bound elsewhere. I left them behind, and so cannot let go. And when I close my eyes, I can hear their voices. Come on and pigeon, Mr. C. 
Hey, now, how you going to do me like that? That don't count as no strike. What the capital of Oregon is, Mr. Common? Everybody live in a tree out there, right? How come you always got to talk so careful, Mr. C? All like, hello, my children. Today is a day when we speak using all the words in the dictionary. Mr. Common, how come you not black and you not white, but you say you like Nas? Don't you got some Asian person music or something so you ain't stealing folks' music? But, but Mr. Cobman, how you know if you don't like a Kool-Aid pickle if you ain't had none? Ooh-hoo-wee, look at his face. He don't like them pickles. M- Mr. Copperman, this poem I wrote for you. Roses are red. Violets is blue. You make it a face like you stepped in poo. Man, shoot, that, that ain't nothing. That's like half a poem. Here's a real poem. Roses is dead, and Violet's dead, too, because I don't fire, and this just burned you. Mr. Cobman, that ain't no poem. You can't use no swear words in no poem. Mr. Cobman, is that a poem? Mr. Cobman, Mr. Cobman, Mr. Cobman. And they're with me again, clamoring to be heard, eyes bright, cheeks shiny, hair shaved close on the boys or braided to tight rows or pulled back clean in buns on the girls, the uniform polos starched and their khakis belted tight sitting straight in listening, learning position, or slouching beneath their desk with arms crossed, or buried in a beanbag chair, or crouched deep in a kicker stance at the plate on the kickball field, or speaking while doing the heel-toe-two step at a sock hop beneath the strobing lights, arms and hands waving, faces upraised, demanding my attention and calling out, joking, declaiming, being absurd and serious and smart and so full of joy and anger and outrage and curiosity. Such kids... And so it is, the further I am from the Delta, the clearer I hear them. Perhaps this nearness and distance is how the past clarifies as it recedes from reach, so that finally what's left is distilled, too perfect to bear. Those kids are after all no longer children, but full-grown men and women now, who likely have children of their own, and jobs and aspirations, and adult burdens. They're no longer my charge, but they're with me as they were. Faces bright, voices loud. And because what happened then is inalterable, it's possible now to love them purely as they were, without the need to have them behave or achieve. Perhaps that's why I've begun to forgive myself for having failed them. Because maybe I didn't fail them after all, any more than they failed me. They were smart, good kids, beautiful in all they didn't know and all they wanted. The poverty that limited them could be ugly, but they were not. And while I could be ugly in my frustration and all the arrogant naivete of youth, I was not such a bad teacher. Not as good as they deserved, but as good of a teacher under the circumstances as I could manage. There was nothing wrong with me or wrong with them. We were a classroom, and for a time, something a little like a family. Though there was so much trauma and trouble and loss along the way that for a decade I couldn't understand why I kept gazing back, mulling over what was gone, it's finally simple. I left a part of my heart in the Delta. Since I left, I've always held back a little, unwilling to risk everything again the way I did back when I didn't know you couldn't change the world through force of will. A part of me will always remain with those kids, and I'll always yearn to return to them, to be with them once more and hear the cadence of their voices, see their upturned, eager faces, and have time for just one more chapter read aloud, one more times table and one more lesson, one last chance to be there with them and so be whole again to be once more, simply and only, teacher. 
Bravo, bravo. Wow, Michael, that is powerful and beautiful and heartbreaking all at the same time. Very, very good. Very good. So do you have any aspirations of, of going and finding some of the kids? Have you thought of that? Well, so I, I'm in touch with some of the kids. Oh, good. Um, so the wonders <laughs> at the edge of the internet, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. A bunch of them are, are on Facebook, and, um, and I'm Facebook friends with them and oh, occasionally check in with them. Um, I also, when this book was published, got to go back to Mississippi um, after quite some time away. And so I actually got to meet with um, quite a few of the kids, actually, um, who were there and find out how they were doing and how their lives have gone and what they're doing now. Um, I even got to meet with one young woman on the college campus uh, that she's about to graduate from or was about to graduate from. She's since Yay. graduated. So That is fantastic. Yeah. So I, I, I have some sense yeah, <laughs> of uh, yeah. some of them are doing. Yeah, well, that that's great, and that and hearing you read that, I my biggest hope was that oh, I hope he stayed connected or found some of them to to hear how they did turn out because that would be my biggest question, right? You know, how, how did they turn out? How were they? Um, have any of them read the book? As far as I know, no one has read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because they are aware of the book. I wasn't going to hide it from them. No, um, yeah. Um, I think in some ways it's perhaps easier for them not to look. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, I was very concerned about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken great pains in this book, I should say, to protect the identities um, and uh, the anonymity of those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. They didn't, they didn't have a choice of being in my classroom. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, and so, and they were just kids. Um, yeah. And so, so far, no one, none of them have, have, as far as I know, actually read it. Now that might not be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. um but none of them have sort of reached out to me about it. Well, I would be interested to hear in the future if if one of them do, does reach out to you reads the book and curious what, you know, their their feelings would be from it. I think that would be a great full circle. I don't know, that's me. That's I I didn't live the life. <laughs> so but you know, I'm always hopeful for that. So Michael, give us um, our parting words as you, as we close out the podcast, um, since you do a lot of work with all different versions of people and writing and aspirations in their life from your perspective, what is your parting tip that you can give to somebody like me that is really wanting to publish works and is just feeling her way through the whole journey? I mean, I think, you know, the obvious thing is, is still the right thing, which is to say that, that you have to stick with it and believe in yourself. Um, the world doesn't line up uh, to try to help people write books. <laughs> and a lot of people around us are going to tell us no again and again, right? Or make it clear to us in small ways and big ways that they don't really think that the writing that we're doing is real work, that it's really important or has value. Um, and so I think it, it ultimately has to be on us to keep believing in ourselves, um, even when that's difficult, even when we sort of hear no more than we ever hear anything encouraging. Um, because if, you know, if you know that what you have to say is valuable and important, um, you know, then, then you're the person who has to make the choice to help that thing, you know, become in the world. Um, 
think that's that's what I would say. Well, I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show. And so listeners, if you listen to this and you are absolutely intrigued and you and you do get Michael's book, um, make sure you message him. I think you're on Facebook and Twitter so they can find you there too and let them know that you heard him on the podcast and, and give them you know, some feedback about the book. And um, may, when you get done with your other book being published, maybe we'll bring you back so we can talk about that one because I, I think that's a very fascinating topic, your second book as well. It would be my pleasure to come. Thank you so much for, for doing this, for having this podcast and for having me on it. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.